Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where me and my friend examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with crazy glowing eyeballs. This is season one and it's episode 22. You know what game we're talking about already. It feels silly to tell you. Anyways, my name is Tyler. And I'm a Nintendo Switch. We invite you to join this adventure by playing Xenoblade Chronicles alongside these episodes where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode, we're discussing chapter 15 where we fly up Mechanus's asshole for a rematch against Egil. You pulled it right out of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, Nate, how are you doing, pal? I'm doing all right. I've had family here for like two and a half weeks straight. Um, my wife's mom came for my son's birthday for one week. And then directly the day after, my parents came for a, yet another week for my son's birthday. And it just kind of lined up that way. It wasn't that the two sets of parents have any aversion to one another, but living in a smaller-ish military home, it's it's kind of a too many cooks in the kitchen situation if we wanted two full families here. But we didn't even plan that, so it just kind of worked out. Besides that, I recently discovered I got in the World of Warcraft Dragonflight beta. So I just thought, hey, why not? I'll stream it. And I ended up not being able to play any of the content of the game, but I still streamed for an hour and a half talking about the new talent system, which was just mind-blowing to me that I had that much to say about it. Nice dude. In my case, I finished Triangle Strategy on Friday, and then I think it was on Sunday I finished Hylix 2. Hylix 2 is going to be the subject of my next video game travelogue. Couldn't tell you when it's coming out yet. I still need to proof my notes and then record my notes and then do all the special, you know, audio tricks that make that episode or those kinds of episodes exciting and so uh could be another month out yet but uh but the quote-unquote research the boots on the ground grinding through the game is over and so i'm pleased that that is all taken care of hylix 2 is freaking hard anyways um happy to sit down and talk about this episode but tyler i also heard that you have a new addition to the family Mm -hmm. yep we picked up a dog in oklahoma we drove 12 hours one way 12 hours back. But Tyler, I hear you have yet another addition to the family. Addition to the family. Got a baby. Oh, that other thing. Okay, so I don't have it yet, but I made a reservation for a Steam Deck back in July 10th, 2022, and I just got the email to purchase it on Monday. And so I'm expecting it coming in maybe two weeks or so, hopefully before the by the end of the first week of October, I'm hoping, and then I'll have it. If you didn't already know, a Steam Deck is a is a handheld console, very much like the Nintendo Switch, but it runs on Linux, and there's a Steam application that runs on Linux that it has, and then you can play Steam games on it. Uh, and so I think it should kind of revolutionize my ability to play games with a three-month-old, because uh, the amount of time I have to sit at my computer, as wonderful as it is, is more limited now than ever in my life. In my adult life, at least, and so I'm looking forward to having that in there, and then and then downloading all the you know all the relevant Steam games I want onto it, and playing that. It is more powerful than than a Nintendo Switch, 
And so I'm looking forward to that. Is that what you meant by members of the family, Nate? Absolutely. And I think you're going to you're going to need that flexibility because I keep tossing you entire libraries of games to download. Uh, I think it was about a month ago I queued you off to a Humble Bundle sale for everything Resident Evil. Bought it. Yep. And then recently you spotted a Halo Master Chief Collection sale, which is like six games. And I said, yep, worth it because it, it ended up being like something like three dollars per game or even less. Even le- I think it was like two, two and a half bucks per game game in the collection and i was like you know a couple of them are hit or miss but there's some solid just like spacefaring slash shooter i don't know it's it hits so many different levels for me it's not your average call of duty nonsense i i'm not a call of duty guy i'm not a shooter guy but halo just does something for me as we've discussed in the past. Our generation has like these moments that you want to be a part of, you know, and Halo was a big cultural moment in video gaming in my generation, but I was turned off to first-person shooters, so I didn't care about Halo. But now that I'm older, now that that moment has passed and I don't have to be part of the, the shooter moment of Halo, I feel like I can maybe play it now and and uh, get a taste of what it was like when it first came out on the original Xbox. So I don't mean to be a hater about first-person shooters, but I just... I don't really care for them, I guess. I like I like chin stroking strategy. That that's that's the kind of games I like. So this chapter begins in medias res, that means in the middle of the narrative. The Makana's face explodes with a giant lance of purple energy that pierces Bionis, and on Sword Valley, everything goes to shit as Makanis grasps its old weapon, that's, you know, sword the Sword Valley weapon, causing tremors for the forces storming Galahad Fortress, the Bionis forces storming Galahad Fortress, and there's chaos in the air, those pterodactyls with the no pawns in the baskets. And that quickly turns into a horrific tragedy as the weapon turns vertical, because he's he's like dislodging, he being Egil, who is in control of Mechanus, is dislodging this weapon and is turning the blade from a horizontal, walkable environment to a vertical environment. Countless Bionis infantry and artillery mechs slip from the turning blade and free fall into the primordial ocean below. It is absolute madness. Luckily, we see that Kallian, before all this, quickly, he he remembers his uh, conversation with Alvis, the, a warning to when the sign happens to be on the lookout for it, and that the big purple beam that came out of Mechanus was, in his mind, that sign. So he orders a retreat. All the other guys thought, hey, we're winning, we have it in the bag, but uh, he sees Mechanus' awakening and that this is about to happen. So props to Kallion for minimizing casualties in this regard. So that's pretty cool, but we get a little bit of a another questionable Dixon moment here with uh, him saying, Damn it, I was counting on you, runt. And he, he bears an uncharacteristic scowl, so I'm not sure. Was that in reference to Shulk? Probably. Probably. Is Shulk not stopping Egil and Egil awakening? Mechanis, all that shit. So, yeah, uh, Dixon's disappointed that these events have come to pass. Mm -hmm. The team is floating in a protective red bubble over the primordial ocean. Maynith's soul is was exhausted but was revived by the cry of Gadal. His wish to protect us all is energizing Maynith, and so we are all floating in this red force field that is protecting us from the carnage all around us. If he had not acted as a shield, would this game, would this story have been over? Yeah, and we've seen Fiora like be 
pretty strongly Maneth before. Like, even the exorcism of Gadult himself was, uh, like, a, a full-on Maneth action, where she was using the extent of her powers to do something cool. So, th- I think we commented, like, that the, the red waves materialize as actual red lights and beams in this moment. So, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's another one of those cases of the power of will, just like trumping science. So if you are more passionate, it's going to awaken the, those deep powers. Yes, very JRPG anime. Mm-hmm. We hear Egil speak as Mechanus, and he says, Shulk, do you hear it? The awakening of Mechanus, the pain of my people echoing through the millennia. Nate, can you imagine how loud that voice must be in practicality? This this continent-sized monster is speaking, and we can hear it on Sword Valley because that's where the shot is oriented, in which we hear the the quote I just said. Can you imagine like how powerful those goddamn speakers are that Egil is in control of now, just blasting noise halfway across the planet? I, I don't know. It makes me wonder, is there one big subwoofer in the throat area, or is there, like, millions of strategically placed speakers all over the body? Maynith installed a great sound system. It's the same thing in Gundam, where you can, um, you'll be on Earth, right, and somebody in the Gundam cockpit will be talking, and the person outside on the ground can hear the Gundam talking via a speaker. But I don't know how that works in space, because sound doesn't travel in space. So do they all have, like, a flawless network connection in, in the battlefield, even with their enemies, that you can just talk and the other person hears you? Because it's not via the speaker. They, they never really explain that. They never tell you how sound works in the Gundam universe. Unless, like, there's probably some Gundam Ultimania somewhere that does but I can't read Japanese. So if anybody has seen that information, send it my way in the Discord. Thank you. We're also learning here that Titans don't have their own unique voice, just the voice of whoever's occupying their soul. And I can't relate to that. If my soul was in a different body, I would have a different voice. Yeah, that's that's something I, I definitely, if I could have a more podcaster, radiocaster-like voice, I would go for it because there, there's some voices out there just I'm completely in love with. Like, if I could have the voice of Markiplier, that that's that's the source of his millions right there. Sure, he's entertaining. Sure, he creates good content. But that voice, man. Dude, someone out there loves your voice. Someone out there does. It could uh, even post be in the chat. Me. <laughs> it could even be Tyler. Post in the chat if you love my voice. Uh, press F for Nate's voice, everybody. Mechanus' hand reaches out to grasp the sword, and as the hand closes around the sword, it crushes allied Mechon, who cry out with hom voices, I notice. Agula says, fall to your deaths, worthless insects. Seems awful cruel, especially when you're kind of crushing units from your own army. I was going to say something about the uh, Maneth bubble, too, here. Lay it on me, pal. During that scene, we we get a little segment where Fiora speaks too, showing that she's not being like swapped or changed out. It's like a mutual possession in this instance. Uh, I didn't really tap into this before, but there's some definite gears moments happening with bodies possessing multiple souls in them here. And when I say gears, I mean Xeno gears. 
So the body possesses multiple souls that were previously kind of swapping back and forth based on circumstance. But now we have that kind of union happening. There's an agreement to share and collaborate within the body as the closeness and need between the two people in there grows. Yeah, that's becoming more and more relevant, this uh, chapter, even as we get into the final moments of it. It's a pretty heavy anime trope, but like I feel like Xenogears kind of went the extra mile because you have like spoilers for Xenogears. Plug your ears for 10 seconds here. but Plug your ears, everybody. Faye has four people in him by the end of the game, and his dad has three, I, I think, right? Is it Khan? Um... Is it Khan, Graf, and Lacan? In there, yes, but the but the systems that produce the unique personas for his dad are not. They obey different rules than they do for Faye because, like, the Groff thing was like a possession of the. I can't. I'm not ready to get into that. that so yeah. It, no. 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 We don't have time for that. <laughs> Go to anyway. retrograde amnesia and and res and state of the art podcast they do really really great series on xeno gears yeah that's what that's what inspired me to do this me too i wasn't inspired to go to the depth of research that they do but it just it felt like so much fun to just be on that process of discovery with them and so i was like tyler i want i want that feeling let's do it let's do a podcast nate so yeah go go check out their xeno gear series it uh for for both groups they were wonderful and they offer different perspectives. Um, I, I don't know if we said this before, but Resonant Arc gives more of like a researched analytical perspective, uh, philosophical and religious wise. Whereas Retrograde Amnesia definitely gives you the experience of what was it like playing that game at age 15, 25 years ago, like and reliving the nostalgia of that with two other people kind of our age you might not be our age but it was magical for us and both of those experiences were awesome Mm -hmm. shulk helplessly cries out for the madness to stop but the madness will not stop Uh, we think we see waluigi die a second time we'll get back to that momentarily but there's this one shot in this scene of carnage that is absolutely brilliant, Nate, where the frame is cut in half kind of diagonally with the sword slowly sliding away towards one corner and these small, small figures are dropping off of it. They look smaller than bugs that Eggle described, more pathetic than bugs in this shot, honestly. They're like particles. They're like sawdust from a hacksaw or like flakes from a gentle snowfall. The detached peacefulness of this one three-second shot is very, very impactful in its cinematography. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I saw that. It was um, it was pretty striking, but that's I'm like a broken record on this game's scale and being like in awe of it. Yeah, but this is like a marriage of cinematography with scale. I'll also comment that previously the sword, obviously it's now like active, but it's completely lit up with like a green slash yellowish glow. And I can only surmise that that is all of Bionis's drained mechon do Bionis blast energy now like circulating fully through the sword. So um, it, it's interesting because here's a here's an element of another postulation of mine just real quick that sword 
was part of their battle with one of another and they didn't McConus didn't know it was going to be in a battle with Bionis. Well, how did it have a sword fully equipped to drain the energy of its uh, rival somewhat seemingly friendly counterpart at the time and fill it with that energy? I wonder is that a retrofit on the part of the Machina people? Did they say we have the sword connected to it, let's install all of this draining technology? Or is that inherent to the sword? So I, I really had to like think about that, the timeline and everything. It's like why would you make this sword if you thought you were perfect friends with this other entity? Yeah, I posited that question last episode and I don't have an answer for that. It if things were so peaceful the way Maineth described it in their hologram flashback. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know where they came from. If things are so peaceful, but everyone's got colossal weapons, you know, behind their backs. Hmm. Yeah, so as far as our party goes, Junks, remember the building, the little town on the Fallen Arm? Sure do. It's now a ship. It's like, a, it's like Final Fantasy VIII's gardens where uh, it, it appears as a little knob in the ground, but hey, it flies. Surprise! They're here to rescue us, and Alvis is on board. So your promise last episode that Alvis was going to be the one to pick us up at the last minute, Tyler nailed it on the head. I kind of pictured it being on his Havris, his like little TIE fighter, but that little fighter cannot accommodate six playable characters plus anybody else, and uh, Vanea as well, right? So we had to go find a bigger vehicle. That's what Alvis did in that downtime. He went to the Fallen Arm, spoke with me, Cole. They, Lenata, let's say, fired up this airship that we didn't know was an airship. This was just a structure floating in the lake in the middle of the palm. And they save us because that red force field that we were floating around in that we spoke about maybe five minutes ago, yours energy dissipates and we all begin to fall into the primordial ocean and we are caught at the last second by Nicole, Alvis, and company. And hey, Dixon's here too. He he jumps on board. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, and he body slams Ryan in the process. Stupid cool guy comment? Nope. Not this time. No. I think Riki caught a boot in that too. I'm not sure though. Dixon's just happy Shulk's alive. He gives Shulk and Fiora the double hug from behind like your crazy Uncle Jimmy used to do. Final shot is a cool profile of Junks soaring through the air. My internal Final Fantasy story beat measuring stick says this is about the time a party earns its wings. Am I going to be able to pilot this thing, Nate? Nope. We are in the post-world map era, Tyler. We have no need for airships anymore other than maybe a menu browsing utility. Final Fantasy X? Yep. You were the herald of the unhappiest moment of my nerddom. <laughs> I, I get it. I felt the same way, but then I realized the entire game is the world map in Final Fantasy X, so... Fine. It was a good game in hindsight. So what now? We're back at the Machina Village. We failed our mission. We failed our mission to Mikol. We did not assassinate Egil, and Mikol kind of bristles about it. Vanea apologizes to Mikol that we didn't accomplish our mission. Even though Egil is the soul of Mechanus, Maneth says Mechanus and she exist as one. Alvis realizes who is speaking. I mean, this is Fiora technically speaking. Fiora's body technically speaking, and it startles Alvis to realize 
who's actually speaking in this moment. Eggle is using the ether he farmed from Bionis to move Makanis. There's still time before Makanis adapts to the ether to do any more damage to Bionis. So I guess it's got ether engines on top of whatever it had before, petrol engines. I mean, what really did motivate Makanis beforehand? I don't really know like where authentic control of this Titan originally came from. We've got ether in the original Titan, or the original Titan, the Bionis Titan, but there's no magical MacGuffin that I can see from the other. We talked about how the Bionis shut down, but we didn't know why Mechanis shut down or stayed shut down, etc. Because it doesn't have that same biological process as Bionis, so to speak. I think the 10,000 years, etc. was a period of Egil working on a retrofit. So that's why I lean that way on the sword as well. But I think Mechanis originally just ran on the energy of Maynith alone. And I can only guess that maybe she's at a much reduced reduced power level being inside Fiora than she once was as in her like god state you know but if Bionis is the source of all ether then let's say that um Maynith was the source of all the me mechanical energy I don't know what you'd call it but it's a different type of energy it's not blue it's red etc and that's gone so Agil needed to find some other way to power it and that means kind of changing the engines a little bit modifying things and it definitely was a process and it still is a process because he's just getting started that's my theory on that one good enough for me good enough for me Benea says only by destroying the core of Mechanis can we stop him how do they get to the core Tyler tell me tell me right now Junks can fly us up a cooling duct on Mechanis's back to get to the control core via the quote heat transfer conduits. Now, if you see the silhouette of Mechanis, its back does have a series of ducts that looks like curved tubes that kind of slope off of its back, kind of like a, I don't know, uh, analogous to a cape maybe. But I guess these tubes are hollow, and I made the joke in the introduction that we're flying up Mechanis's asshole, and I'm not so sure that Mechanis has an asshole, but the next best thing is cooling ducks up their back. <laughs> and so... That's the goal. Yeah, and cooling duct sounds a hell of a lot like a ventilation shaft to me. So we've upgraded the obligatory shaft infiltration sequence from just a dungeon element to a key plot advancement point. And you know my hatred for ventilation shafts already. I didn't know it was hatred, but yeah. It's a hatred of how that is the weakness by which all enemies are always exploited. The heroes never have ventilation shafts that are exploited. Only the bad guys, right? Cover your asshole. Yeah, well, I just went and filled all my ducks top to bottom with broken glass and soup can lids that I cut <laughs> with a can opener from 1968, and I'll die from my own fart air before anyone gets into my personal fortress. Jesus Christ, Nate. In the final moment of this scene here, Dixon sees the soul transfer crystal and goes, Hmm... So that's where you've been hiding. I guess it's almost time to finish this. What the fuck does that mean? So I guess Dixon has been looking for her, her being Lady Maynith. Has he been trying to get Shulk to draw her to him? And if so, for what purpose? Is it to eliminate her? Oh my god, I have an idea. What if he wants soul transfer technology to recapture Zanza and become one with him or force it onto Shulk? Yeah, there's a lot there. And it's this game kind of jumps through like 
Maybe it's just a, a untempered writer's hand, but sometimes the game says, you the protagonist, Shulk, we need to give you special abilities and powers with which to deliver the plot. And then other times it's just like, okay, we're giving you omniscient third person perspective to the point where you can hear the bad guy's thoughts inside his head. So, um, you know, sometimes we're observing scenes of our enemies or other times we're literally inside their brain. So um, it begs the question, you know, why why do we have scenes where like there's these forced abstract reasons for delivering exposition to our heroes when you can just show me anytime you want final moment of the scene elvis quote unquote overhears this thought that dixon is having and bookmarks it in his brain did you take that as he actually heard the thought via his psychic powers i didn't think of that well he's overheard suspicious thoughts uh before i mean in the alchemoth chapters he overheard i think it was the queen thinking something suspicious and he turns to her doesn't say anything but like strokes his chin and does a hmm sort of thing and I feel like that's happening again here. You're right. That's awesome. Thank you for pointing that out. Because I have a note that maybe he's wondering what Dixon's thinking. But you're completely right because I forgot about that element of Alvis. Outside of Junk's, Ryan hollers, Oi! Look at that! And we can see McConus moving in the distance, sort of glowering down at us as we sit in the palm of its disembodied hand. Yeah, the game is pushing you, um, I think... It's either Vinaya or Lanata, I forget. They they say we don't have much time, we gotta we gotta go right now. But uh you're actually briefly given control of your character. You can teleport anywhere on Bionis, but you cannot teleport anywhere on Mechanis. Mechanis is all red and I checked my quest log, there's nothing with the like timer for an expiring quest, so I'm gonna take it that I can still progress my objectives after this sequence. But, you know, the the narrative is just really pushing me towards doing this next act instead of screwing around for an extra two hours like I usually do. I did fuck around. I found a Ryan Sharla hearts to heart in Colony 9. Oh, really? A Ryan Sharla one. Yeah. So I saved my game before this because I'm really, really bad at these. And Sharla says being in Colony 9 makes me feel... Nostalgic for the way Colony 6 used to be. Ryan can say, do you want to go back there or it'll all be fine? What do I answer? It'll all be fine. Wrong fucking answer. Reset game, start over. <laughs> Following that, Charlotte says she wants to return but feels like she can't. It's important to keep fighting. The next comment is easy. Way easier than the first, uh, you know, select A or B. As one of them is, don't be so hard on yourself because always, always in these heart to hearts, coddling the other person's perspective is the correct answer. That's how you improve your relationship with them. You coddle them. <laughs> how can any other option not be the right answer? They flirt a little bit and then the scene is over. Okay, I'm glad you did that for me. I have not done that one yet. It's not literally in Colony 9. I mean, it's in Colony 9, like the map, but it's off to one of those, like, distant shores. Yeah. This uh, kind of Mechanus trudging towards Bionis, it, it gives me the compulsion to actually play by the ludo narrative for once to drop a uh, gamer term in there um but i it brings up something i need to just briefly talk about in regards to our podcast here there is a lot 
of cutscenes coming our way and not a lot of gameplay for the rest of this chapter. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, when I originally started this podcast, I thought I'd be talking more about, like, you know, game... I don't mind talking about story beats as well, but some of these chapters are 80% narratives. And I don't mind talking about story either, but this one is about 80 percent yeah narrative and you you caught on to exactly where i was going so just for our listeners a little bit of preface here um necessarily like enjoy websites or properties or you know places that just recap the thing you just watched i'll I'll go back to like it was really fun watching the show lost and then going online and hearing everyone's theories and postulations and like supporting evidence and everything and that caught on huge and then it just gave way to like a lot of websites and forums and blogs that just like recap the events of what you just saw straight and don't offer any like commentary or critique on it so i think it's one way in which it benefits us to really like pick apart (laughs) this game and property and try and offer something a little unique than just us telling you what happened in a chapter in a game that we're kind of asking you to play with us and you just saw that chapter so in those Mm -hmm. times when it just seems like we're reciting events back and forth please bear with us because we are looking for ways in which to just break things down come with our own perspective and also like we're excited to talk about gameplay and systems and design and when we're having fun and we really love it when like we do something different than one another and we can kind of play off that so this chapter i'm fighting my hardest to not have a in cases like these with chapters with very little game content to not just have a dry reciting of events i'm i'm trying to do everything i can to add a little spice and insight to it What do you think, Tyler? I feel the same. Sometimes it's like we're just an anime review. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and that's not to say we aren't loving the story, but it's hard to just sit here and recite events on a podcast so i'm you know sometimes if it seems like i'm nitpicking or like ripping on the game it's just part of this process of like if you love something you got to be willing to pick it apart and uh put it back together geez louise all right are we ready to here we go ready to go up the sphincter yeah let's do it all right we go way deep i'm kidding right before we do on the way as we're soaring through the air, we have a rather tender scene between Fiora and Vinaya. Vinaya apologizes for doing the whole soul transfer business. Fiora says it's all good. It allowed her to see her friends again, although Shulk and company would say, wow, that took us a lot of energy to see you again. Fiora describes what it's kind of like. She says she feels Lady Maynith's heart. She can't see her feelings, however. Maynith still has secrets, which is eyebrow raising. There is a part of my heart that is hidden, the part that holds Maynith's feelings. Yet she knows how she feels about this world. That is, as a peaceful savior, that's my interpretation of it. But Fior is happy to let her use her body, which is a pretty strange position to take here. I find it strange that they're so connected, soulfully collected, but she doesn't feel her feelings. Tyler, we get a quick little scene um, in here of... Callian looking on in shock at Makanis moving. We also... We missed this scene, didn't we? Yeah, and we also have confirmation that uh, Colonel Waluigi hangs on to dear life to a Nopon blimp. And it's good that this time we got a confirmation of him being alive because uh, last time we were just completely blown away that he was still beaten ass 
as a living human or the living Hom. So we have visual confirmation that Kalyan and Waluigi survived the terror of Sword Valley turning over to its side and becoming a weapon again. But we don't have visual confirmation of Atheron surviving it. I think we even got Charlo worrying about Atheron too. We go through a bullet hell scene. Our ship junks, zooms through a bunch of laser defenses. There's beams of energy blasting all over us. Of course, we dodge every one. We make crazy maneuvers up a duct maintenance shaft. Man, this would have been a really great mini game opportunity. In a previous generation of video games, I feel like this whole bullet hell race up the asshole scene would have been a mini game where you would go from walking around as human beings to maybe piloting a Star Fox sort of rail shooter in which you're kind of zooming around this tunnel blasting things as you go over there but no we are treated to a cinematic experience as we go to the end of the scene here i feel like in the old days xenogears would have done it <laughs> they would have tried to do it there's a whole fighting mini game in that game that serves no other purpose than one story beat right exactly but also there's a connection to i was talking earlier about halo and uh halo reach has a nice little segment tucked in there where for just one mission you go to space you have a spaceship you're shooting guys down you're infiltrating bases etc it's wonderful and that that's a game that uh you know hey we talked about shooters but it those games pack in a lot of versatility and so yeah i was kind of feeling the same thing i was feeling like i want i want in this moment to be star fox it felt like it didn't it eventually the ship comes to a stop in the middle of a vast maintenance shaft just above a giant spinning fan and i swear to fucking god nate when junks disengages its wings and goes into idle mode it plays the same exact sound effect that plays when you open a door in doom or doom 2 post-production tyler play the sound effect of junks coming to a stop and then play the sound of a door opening in doom okay here's junks coming to a stop and here's the door opening in doom Wow, you are so right, Tyler. I completely agree. So, yeah, we get a cutscene that says um, if they can deactivate that core, the Apocrypha won't inhibit the Monado and they can take on Agil. And Shulk's mind is elsewhere. He's, He's very distracted lately by everything going on. He wonders, like, out loud, why was he called Zanza by Agil? Why can he perceive the future without the Monado right now? He's getting like spur of the moment visions, just in, or not even visions, but just like insight or instinct even. And ever since he came to Mechanis, he's changed. Uh, we had a theory last couple episodes ago or an episode ago. I, I don't, sometimes I don't know because it depends how we edit them and put them out. But um, we had a theory that there's Shulk in a baby pod in Mechanis, and uh, this kind of leans into that dueling saviors theory again. If Maynith was merged with a Homs that ended up being made more Machina, was Zanza merged with a Machina that was made more Homs? Is Shulk's true nature that he was once a Machina as a baby in the baby pod? And the reason he's got new powers when he comes to Mechanis is because he's actually from here? Good question. Good question. No idea. I'm fully expecting that to be a wrong theory, but those random pieces just 
they leave too many questions that I, I have to I have to get the board out and string up the red string, right? Yes. Yes, you do. I do too. Yeah. Did you put in a clip from uh what is it, Charlie? Charlie Sunny, yeah. I doing did. that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was laughing at that. That was perfect. That's how it feels sometimes. God damn. How would you like to be the subject of the meme that the internet refers to when you talk about going insane with like theories. That seems like that sounds like such a privilege to me. It sounds like exactly what he wanted. Exactly what he was going for was like the definitive version of that character he embodied in that moment. Shulk kind of grapples with the idea of, is it really the right moral thing to be wielding Zanz's weapons? And shortly afterwards, he erupts with purple electricity. He's in huge pain, and why? Dunbin recognizes this pain. Shulk is convulsing with electrical pain kind of like luke skywalker does or um <laughs> not mace windu but mace windu forget it we'll stick with the, the luke skywalker one um I, I know where you're going with yeah it. yeah yeah he's just but no one's like uh blasting with it he's just bursting with the electricity painfully the electrical torture ends and we don't have a really good explanation why. And then Shulk gets a variety of pep talks from his teammates. Uh, Ryan does the usual. Well, it's actually genius scientist Ryan who comes up with the prevailing theory that the party adapts. That is um, that Shulk has been fighting the Apocrypha's oppressive weight via sheer will. And the effects have finally caught up with him. That, that was not like delivered by anyone else that was ryan's theory and shulk says he thinks it's something else but he doesn't it doesn't really seem like anybody responds to shulk's mm -hmm. uh assertion they go with the ryan answer instead and it's like shulk scientist mechanical wizard you have no idea what you're talking about we're going with the ryan theory we get, we have to shut down apocrypha because that's what's fucking shulk up ryan science ryan's did you get the the lone side quest here the lone side quest what was it? Uh, you have to craft the ultimate weapon for Fiora at the Weapon Forge. I vaguely remember that, but I don't have a note for it. Wait, 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 I do. A Junk's console operator has a quest to send us to a weapon design console and create something fresh for Fiora. Yeah, and it's, it's so fun because teleporting is still not allowed here. So you have to manually hoof it all the way to the bottom floor of the central factory yeah we're back in central factory by the way we don't enter a new zone this is another quarter of a zone we've been to before it's great when you're exploring but if you're asking me to hoof it across an entire zone with no battles for no reason they put these waypoints in here for a reason tyler and it's like i'm already on mechanis there's no danger being in this zone at least let me teleport within the zone itself but the, uh, maybe if you're under leveled, this is an opportunity to get some more levels. Uh, so that might be, for me, nothing aggroed to me, and I was like 10 levels over everything. So it was just a straight run. Okay, so I get back to my main quest. There's another flag on the map for a uh, obligatory progression scene. I dodge. A red flag cutscene by jumping into the platform just below it. We're on this floating 
walkway here, but there's another layer, another level below it, and I dodge the cutscene flag by jumping below it. It teleports me elsewhere in the zone. I'm in the face maintenance bay now. It has a fire ether gear node nearby and a console that shuts off a screen of red no-go bars. This must be a shortcut connecting me to the rest of the zone from the new area I arrive in. Right in front of me, Majestic Mordred. Do I do it? Yes, and I die. It spawns me next to the red flag I was avoiding, and I carelessly tip my thumbstick forward and trigger the goddamn scene anyways. <laughs> yeah, about these scenes, again, I, I don't know. Like, for me personally, they're a little bit repetitive because it's all Shulk contemplating Monado stuff, worrying, talking about Apocrypha. You know, it's like if you were to plot these things out on a like a storyboard sequence at a studio that creates visual narratives, like let's say Pixar, right? They would have cut about five of these six scenes and said, how do we take all the information from these six scenes and put them in the one scene from when we arrive? So uh, just a little bit of critique there. It seems like there's a lot of redundancy and repetition here that isn't really delivering me anything new, but here we are. More Monado thoughts. The uh, It's more powerful than ever. And I don't care. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Uh, the the Bionis Monado and this one must be linked. The the big one from the Vision. Yeah. We chatted about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shulk, Shulk sees his dream again of you're not here from Baby Shulk. That was interesting, actually. Yes, even not Baby Shulk. Uh, kid Shulk, um, daycare Shulk. <laughs> um, <laughs> and but but it does lead me to yet another uh, i'm i'm gonna it sounds like i'm complaining a lot tonight but i have another complaint uh fiora asks shulk what he's thinking about and he says nothing not that he didn't say anything he literally tells her nothing he's not thinking about anything i'm not thinking about anything right now i'm only racing to the core of the giant titan monster that's gonna destroy my homeland First off, this is a classic marital communication mistake, Shulk. So uh, the woman always knows it's something. It's not nothing. And it's also uh, stepping all over the plot development we had or the character development we had in the Ether Minds back when I was a podcast baby and had no idea what I was doing, where we had an episode where Shulk kept telling everything it was nothing and Ryan hammered it into his head that he had to share his thoughts and what's troubling him to the point of it affecting major plot beats <laughs> and we're still at it so this character trait is getting kind of annoying to me of him not sharing and taking everything on himself and being quiet because really it's coming off as more of like an exposition tool for the writers to deliver something they want to deliver and not like it's coming at the expense of the character now at this point shulk looks dumb and kind of like an asshole and like he's incapable of growth if he's gonna never change on this aspect of himself she says if it's too hard to handle on your own talk to me 
That is the exact same sentiment from the ether mines with Ryan. Just past the shaft where we parked, Junks is another enormous room with a huge power core-like structure built halfway into a wall. It is seriously enormous. It glows orange and it has this big array of brackets that hold it into place like prongs on a diamond ring and a floating walkway leading me to it. This walkway had that red flag cutscene trigger that we talked about. It's time to attack this thing, but it's activated now. And then we cut to Mechanus swinging its sword into Bionis again at, well, Valak Mountain, according to the, uh, excuse me, Ham forces that are watching the shadow of the sword coming down on top of them. And it's bad news for them. We can assume lots of Homs died in this swing. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, can I still quest there after all this? I've got like a level 100 giant tomb to open up and yeah, a lot of... Too. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of snowboarding to do without a snowboard. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope Valak Mountain's is okay. I mean, I'm sure all the people on it are dead, but I, I kind of need to go back there still. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing what that... Uh, terrestrial permanence will look like. Let's see if there's any adjustments to that zone here. Boss battle, Nate. Tank and spank, easy. Easy, we fight the Apocrypha generator. It's a floating mechanical sphere with an infrared eye plus an array of four smaller spheres. Only the large sphere is targetable, so this fight feels more chaotic than it really is because you only can target one and the other ones are just whipping around the battlefield. It has a pretty powerful laser volley attack, but the fight wasn't very difficult. Majestic Mordred looks down his nose at the Apocrypha generator, way stronger than this boss. The Apocrypha Generator, which I guess is that large sphere that the... Wait, no, it is the Apocrypha Generator. It w it's not protecting the Apocrypha Generator. The boss was the Apocrypha Generator. Mm-hmm, yeah. At which point, the Monado Beam is longer and whiter than ever in response to the Generator's destruction, this limiter that the... Apocrypha was putting on the Monado is no longer functioning, so this Monado Beam is more erect than ever, and Shulk is feeling okay. Elvis and Dixon pat themselves on the back that things are getting back on track again, although Elvis recognizes that this, that uh, he doesn't know how things are gonna proceed from this point. Yeah, thicker, longer, wider. More uncut. That's just me when my wife gets home from deployment. Um, new art learned. Cyclone. Did you go get those other Manano arts I told you about? No, I didn't. This chapter was went, came and went so fast, I did not. Okay. This is a fast fucking chat. I think I have them all now. The the UI is full of Monado art, so Excellent. I think I have all of them. I don't put Shulk in my party very often, frankly. It's because he got all of the easy affinity with everyone, like, as the game... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like, man mandated it, so now we're kind of playing catch-up with everybody else. We go into a teleporter, and it takes us directly into the Mainith soul room where Egil is occupying the apparatus that allows him to control Mechanus itself. Egil is in Goldface, is in Mechanus. They're all linked. It's all one. It shows his movements controlling, like, a giant screen is displayed, and you can see the arms of Mechanus moving in tandem with the arms of Goldface, Yaldabaoth, and Egil, etc. Egil mm -hmm. takes another swing at Mechanus with his Yalda sword, which slices into Bionis' arm again, and he says, kind of gloating at the party, how many died in that swing? A hundred? A thousand? How many do you think died in that attack? Hundreds? Maybe thousands? I'm gonna go with like three because <laughs> he kind of he hit the shoulder, and like the biggest zone I've seen has maybe thirty people in it. So 
I'm going with three. That's three people point. died. Yeah. That was a big effing zone. Yeah. Unless he counts monsters. If he's counting monsters, then yeah, he probably cleaved a good least 250. Aim for the head. Vinaya doesn't want Eggle destroyed by Honest. And Eggle says that thing lurking inside that girl is not our god. Face me, Shulk, successor of Zanza. And only when I destroy. Well, I'm reading this like it's as if he's quoting, but this is actually a paraphrasing. Only when I destroy half the world will there be peace. And I think that's kind of funny. Only when you destroy half the world will there be peace. The previous chapter, I talked about how Egil seemed to be worshipping maybe an idealized version of Maneth mm. and not actual Maneth. And it made me wonder, does he know Maneth is trancing about inside a Hom girl body or does he think she's dead or in slumber deep within Makanis? We didn't really know, but we kind of get this answer here that because she changed from the idealized version of herself, he doesn't even acknowledge her anymore. And, you know, I'm just going to give a quick little analysis here that it's actually a pretty great characterization and story of him because... Um, just quickly, I'll say like growing up in church, I know a lot of people who craft like their own personal faith that has no relation to the reality of it, or even the scriptures or texts that they themselves say they follow. So it's like, if that text were to say, quote, it is easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of God, unquote, that person still won't understand the message or relate to like, maybe I shouldn't just chase wealth and shit all over people uh, to get financial gain. And I should value something else to the point where I know a lot of religious business owners who are happy to screw people over for profit. And it just makes me think, where does that come from? Where, wh how do you consider yourself a like faithful religious person when it doesn't dictate or follow your actions at all. I think over time, over generations, over centuries even, um, human beings interpret these holy books differently mm -hmm. according to the socioeconomical pressures around them. Exactly. And so that's why I think like this characterization of Egil is pretty spot on that he he had a version of her in his head based on who she was 10,000 years ago and her observations, her desire for change, her differences he doesn't acknowledge any of that because that's not the faith he grew up with. Those wishes of hers do not acknowledge his pain. He He's just, he's over it. Yeah, he's over it. Another boss battle. A good boss battle, Tyler. Basically back-to-back -back boss battles. This was a good boss battle. Yeah, it had stakes. Ah, yeah, and like just it's well-designed in that it's not just the stand there and press all your buttons at once. I actually lost the first time because I did it that way. And there's a really great moment in the middle of the boss fight where they do the death scene and I'm so tired of the death scene, except it shows the target being Bionis itself. And you see a vision of Mechanis cleaving Bionis in half. And this time you, do, you have 120 seconds, not 12 seconds to prevent it. And it actually places objectives over the battlefield for you to dismantle enemies are being summoned in to kind of block your path and obstruct you and kick the ass of your partners so there's a lot more like you said it maybe it's not chin stroking strategy but there's like 
actual strategy. You need to deploy, like, save some of those abilities for this. Don't use all of your attacks at once. And bring these guys over here. Have them change targets fast. Burst this thing down. Um, and that's the kind of stuff I like. That's kind of like MMO design right there that they just incorporated into this fight. We have to save Bionis. And that's the name of the quest. The surprise spontaneous quest that comes up partway through the battle. We have to just... We have to defeat three energy devices that kind of circle uh, Yaldabaoth here, and we have 120 seconds to do it. But before that happens, I get one-third of his health down before he has his first attack, which is Chastise, which roots everybody. He's got another ability, Continual Model, that is an attack that is like a backhand bitch slap, very much like Jadeface did before. And so the stakes get very, very high. And then, you know, we got the 120 seconds, like you said. Saved by honest, I do. And then as that's happening as well, he's spawning other uh, ads as well, not just the ones we have to destroy in, in, in order to save by honest to interrupt that attack. They're called Terminator slash Clock. Hasta la vista, baby. Clock is in all capitals. That's the kanji part of the mob's name there. And I lost to this battle too. I did die um, when too many of those large mantis Terminator clocks appeared and everybody's health bar went to zero. But when the fight ends, Shulk goes insane! Yeldabaoth is trying to make attacks towards Shulk, and he's dodging every blow as if he's, like, dynamically predicting every move. The it, the Monado isn't even showing him visions. He's just seeing everything before it happens. Not unlike Alvis's initial introduction, where he was able to just counterattack the Telethia left and right. He, maybe he's reached Alvis-level powers here. And cuts Yaldabaoth's head clean off, exposing Egil. The head falls through a cavity in the room and drops into the primordial ocean below. Egil goes, what the fuck? He's uh, now perched atop the severed gold face head. We hear a voice, Nate. We hear maybe a couple voices. Do it. Kill him. Kill him. That voice. Who is that? Strike, Strike him down. down. I'll kill him. A thousand times. Yes, finish him. End it. It is what you want. Yeah, I heard multiple voices, not just like reverb. It sounded like many different people. I Definitely Zanza's in there, but I'm also hearing a little bit of Dixon, are you? Same, same. Is it Dixon's? Is it yeah. Zanza's? It could be both. I'm hearing, I will kill him a thousand times. Yes, finish it. End it. It is what you want. And it's kind of coaching Chalk to... Lay the final blow, a killing blow on Egil. He says he'll do it for Fiora, who is standing right next to him. <laughs> well, not right next to him, but is standing below. And he'll also do it for the Emperor, a guy he knew for like 12 minutes. So, uh, yeah. Uh, then we hear Alvis's voice, then Atheron's, then Godot's, and then Charla's, and everybody that has impacted him on his journey. He's recalling advice and quotes that resonate with him all at once. You must find your Monado. Are you ready? Are you feeling hungry, eh? Chew on this, scrap you for even brain. Kill a hom, Mr. Beatus. That once wished only I to break the circle of suffering. Until I've he scrapped each and every one of you! Maynard, the villagers, everyone loved you. Every person. Yes. That is why they wished to live alongside End you. It. The way it is so what you want. To Maynard and to me. No! This isn't what I want! And he chooses not to lay the executing blow onto the E-Man. It's interesting that Alvis is in that vision because we 
we're still pretty questionable on Elvis and his connection to Dixon and his manipulations, but maybe it's just that Shulk sees him as a trusted figure. But I was like, uh, that's kind of weird that he's there stopping him from doing the attack. Shulk retracts the blade and sits down next to Angle and they have a heart to heart. He's sitting on kind of the shoulder of Yaldabaoth, more or less, and they are within close conversational distance with one another. And that's exactly what happens. Shulk realizes or excuse me, Shulk says he realizes we share the same pain. Shulk has no reason to kill Agil, although Agil has reason to kill Shulk and Bionis and all of his friends. Agil's like, no, I will destroy anything in spite of your compassion. And Shulk says, I will stay your blade over and over again until we understand each other. Agil kind of claps back at him and says, you understand the Monado, but do you honestly believe that you are its master? And then Egil has a lot to say about the history of the two Titans and his relationship with giants. Yeah, this is a pretty revelatory sequence mm-hmm. here. This this is an example of delivering lots of information in a single scene in a way that is done well and I'm happy with. Instead of taking six scenes to deliver information I don't care about. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, we see a flashback and um, Egil is chatting with a man by the name of Arglas which looks exactly like the man we know to be Zanza. In fact, it is the same man, but he has a very different temperament than we know. Egil and Argus are friends and are talking about the future of their two worlds, working together, and they're, they're thinking about how their children are one day going to leave the two titans and travel to other worlds as well. That it's inevitable. And so they want to coexist in peace and prosperity and see that future off together. I wondered if there's a tie-in to that explore other worlds comment and Shulk drifting in space, thinking or, or you know interacting with Alvis telepathically. We don't get into space in this game very often and these two moments kind of made me think about one another in harmony. And it also puts me in the perspective of the greater Xeno narrative because Mm. space exploration and delivering titanic destructive beings to worlds, it's all very Xeno. You just gave me an idea. What if at the final scene or whatever, we start learning all of the stuff about where the Titans came from and it is this completely disconnected epic story that has, that, There's nothing to do with anything else that we've been relating to, and it's and it's this cosmic war, and they all crashed into here, and blah 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 blah, and I don't know. I, if it were Xenogears, I feel like that would happen. Oh yeah, you know, like, definitely. Like the we're like the big reveal, the tell-all is like so detached from like every like from the game, from everything we've experienced otherwise. I don't think that's the case, but I can imagine it. Mm-hmm. Well, we do have a big reveal here, and it is that. We see Zanza picking up the Monado, or it's like a sword in the stone kind of situation. Yeah. We aren't we aren't told how the Monado got there, what it what it's doing there. We've seen Monado in this form of a giant beam of light that the Bionis wields, and I had previous theories about it. I had theories that like giants learned how to capture that energy and put it in a smaller sword. No idea. Like that we still don't have those kinds of answers, but what we do have is an answer of 
saying that that was the moment that Argolis, the seemingly benevolent giant leader, turned into what we know to be Zanza, that he was possessed by the Monado, and that the Monado and Zanza are one and the same, that the sword has a spirit, and that spirit inhabits the body of the Titan, or inhabited the body of the giant. We now have an answer for why when uh, Metalface killed Zanza's body, a, a spirit seemingly persisted. Mm-hmm. We don't know where that spirit went, if it went into Shulk fully, but there's there's a lot answered here in the sequence of what exactly Zanza is and how that betrayal or progression happened. Um, Egil says that really Zanza desires for for all to be a part of it so whether it's killing the people of Mekanis or reabsorbing all the Homs and the energy and stuff to reawaken Bionis it all originates and should return back to Zanza that that is the kind of I don't even know if you'd call it like the chief sin it's just the, the like the conceit of that entity is that like Life should only serve the purpose of empowering it. The, the individual wishes of the living themselves don't truly matter. Am I? Did I get that correct? Yeah, I think you did because I remember, like, I also remember hearing that the Monado equals like the will of all life on Bionis, and so the will of all life on Bionis wants to slay the other Titan. If that's true, I guess I don't, like, in my heart of hearts, I don't love that. To think that all Homs and all Hyantias and all Bonnets and, you know, anything else that's on <laughs> Bionis are, their their heart of hearts says, we have to destroy the other Titan. That sounds like that just kind of sucks. Yeah, and this is another, we talked previously about, like, a Deus-like, as far as Xenogears goes, mm-hmm. the whether the Bionis or some sort of force on Bionis is a Deus-like. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean is that Deus is an entity that just absorbs matter, and whether it's mechanical or biological, to repair itself and return itself to its former glory. So we're kind of seeing that same theme here in this. We are, yeah. Uh, and then Egil drops that um, in order to perpetuate his soul, Zanza possesses the beings of Bionis. So, like I already kind of postulated, we can kind of guess that he's inside Shulk now via the voices, via the the moment when uh, Argolus's body was killed mm-hmm. atop Prison Island, and we saw that like energy waft away. We heard his voice still active, and that we've dismantled the apocrypha engine yes oh maybe that was something that was keeping him from being particularly active within shulk yeah yeah i think so yeah i didn't think about that maybe the the shulk pain is uh zanza trying to get out in the midst of the apocrypha oh my god dude the electricity color was purple too yeah oh man i didn't i didn't join those (laughs) dots yet nicely done yeah, so here's the question. What is the Dunban arm problem? Was it that Dunban was resisting the influence of Zanza, or was it just that Zanza didn't deem Dunban worthy to be a wielder? I like the idea of Dunban was not worthy because that kind of gives him motivation to be part of the party that cracks him in the end. Okay. 
So one last observation here, then. Is Zanza the, the spirit that passes from being to being? Is he essentially my able shulk that I've been referencing? Yes, I think so. Unless, unless we learn something about the doppelganger shulks that tells us otherwise, I think you're right. But I'm saying Faye, um, this is the analogy. There was a, in, in Gears, there was a man named Abel, who also was a man named Lacan, who was also a man named Faye, and also a man named Kim. And through generation to generation, he keeps coming back and moving from entity to entity. So when I say Abel Shulk, I'm saying that there is an originator Shulk that keeps kind of reincarnating or living from generation to generation. And that these these reincarnations are the ones meant to wield the Monado and anyone else can fuck off, right? Uh, but reincarnation does not limit the original entity's ability to move and do other things so it's almost like a copying procedure as fucked up as that sounds is that correct because we have the con and graf and Faye all coexisting and this is not a xenogears podcast so i'm just going to leave that there all i'm saying is I think Zanza is our able shulk that there's going to be a, a like doppelganger shulk that shows up and is like, Hey, I'm the original blonde wonder boy. You're just a cheap copy of me. Give me my sword back. Give me your body. I need it to do shit. Like you, you stop being little wonder boy. Nobody cares about your quest for peace. I'm, I'm the one who started all this. Fuck off. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's where that's going is an able shulk is going to show up and the, and I can stop using that name because it's Zanza. That's who Zanza is, is the originator shulk. Egil recognizes that shulk is different in spite of accusing him of being a vessel of Zanza in some respects here. And he says that, well, shulk, your challenge is to break the curse of Zanza. And shulk thinks that that's probably a, Pretty good assessment there. He reaches out his hand in understanding. And right as they're about to make a truce between one another, a shot rings out. Shulk is pierced through the chest by a bullet. Close up of a muscle. Fucking Dixon. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that, little brat. You shouldn't have done that, little brat. Chapter end. Chapter ends. High action beginning, cliffhanger end, and Dixon has uh, put a hole in our hero here. Okay, so we heard the two voices of perhaps Zanza and Dixon coaching Shulk in his mind to uh, lay the killing blow on Eggo there. He didn't, and so maybe Dixon is taking matters into his own hands here. Maybe he is the vessel of Zanza, or has been since uh, Zanza died in Prison Island. Or maybe he's been that way all along. He's been that way all along, because he was doing fucked up shit before that. Also, he has for years and years and years known how to make anti-mechon weaponry. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. But I remember a handful of chapters ago that Larithia expressed disdain for Dixon, and we th- suspected that Dixon was a good guy in that moment, and that Larithia is a bad guy, bad girl. <laughs> She's a bad girl. 
And that probably remains true, but seeing Dixon do a heel turn here, I feel like, well, what is it about Dixon that Larithia doesn't like? If she's still a bad girl, and if she opposes a person who just put a hole in our protagonist here, how bad can she be? Or maybe they're both villains and they have different goals. It could be one of those things as well. But um, it made me wonder about Larithia, because I know we're going to see more of her. I, I, I refuse to believe that her threat is over. We originally are introduced to Larithia for the first time when she's talking to the first consort queen lady what's her name do you remember her name yumea yeah so we're first introduced her and like they're part of that bionite order which serves like the awakening of the bionis and worships the bionis whereas the hindia have kind of moved on from that and larithia is in cahoots with all of those people i would think that taking this action from Dixon to kind of protect the interests of Zanza and Bionis as we know it would be in line with the interests of the Bionite Order. So all that to say, I don't know why she would despise Dixon. Maybe maybe he's just a creepy old man because he's always commenting. He's he's making some pervy comments here and there, and maybe she's the subject of some pervy comments on his part. That might be as deep as it goes because I would think their interests are aligned. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been a production of Here with a Thousand Potions, recorded on September 22nd or 23rd, 2022. We have an email. You already know what it is. That's 1000potions. We're also on Discord with a link that you can access from our RSS feed. My name's Tyler. I'm Nate. And channel our unity into strength. You can't have a rainbow without Ryan, baby. Yeah, baby. Is Ryan coming out of the closet there in that? <laughs>
who knows uh, it, it seems like that is rare in the undertale community for some reason I, i've already gone through this process years ago and was equally as spit out of it as maybe you were tyler ness is not sans speaking of uh no i lost that transition but did you hear that like in the moment yourself no it did not occur to me do, do you know that sound that i'm talking I, about i don't okay all right but, yeah it sounds exactly like it i mean if i heard it i'd be like yeah i know but at the moment it's not coming to mind word it's been years <sighs> since i've it's been years since i doomed you doomed you haven't patched a doom to your your e-fridge living at the bleeding edge of Meccano of of the Meccan shitty of the Monado's power <laughs> sorry everything you just said like turned into mush in my brain <laughs> we we beat it right that's <laughs> that's where you left it <laughs> no I, I died to it and I never finished the chapter oh okay you shouldn't have done that Nah, just put the clip in there. Wait, what? What? Hold on. There's one that's from Riki. says, Ryan, give one biscuit for every stroke? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> That'll do it for this episode. This has been a hero product. Woo! Can I talk? This might be an outtake section here, but can I talk about bad girls for a little bit, Tyler? Would you please? I think, I think my like sexual identity is bad girls that eventually turn good. <laughs> I don't know if you can vibe with that at all, but I have some examples. Yes. And, and coincidentally, they all seem to be uh, strapped up in leather bodysuits. I don't know if there's anything with that and maybe potentially high heels. But uh, my first example is Adea Kramer. Final fantasy. Eight. She is initially a bad girl. She, sits on a uh, political podium and talks down to the masses, telling them they're idiots, worthless slaves, and to just enjoy the show as she brings their country to ruin, like a true dominatrix. But then later you find out she was actually your mom the whole time. <laughs> that, that's a, that, that was a formational experience to uh, potentially uh, my female interests. Then next we have um, from the Power Rangers season, Power Rangers in Space. The main antagonist is a woman by the name of Astronoma. Astronoma. She is, yeah, she is a leather and metal clad Again, dominatrix-themed vixen who doesn't really do any fighting, but just orders in annoyed tones down to her subjects what they need to do. Um, but it turns out she is actually the sister of the main character of that season and was mind-controlled by bad guys and that she can be saved and brought over to the good side. She eventually does become the Pink Ranger, and is completely cleansed of her evil ways. Another example of a bad girl gone good. And then lastly, we have Isabella Valentine from the Soul Calibur series. Let's see, where shall I cut first? She is corrupted by her father, Cervantes de Leon, wielder of Soul Edge, to be a... 
uh, infested uh, servant of darkness until she uses alchemy to cleanse herself of the influence and go after Cervantes herself and essentially turns from bad girl to good girl as well. Good for her. So that's my top three, and I, I feel like that has formulated my um, my particular interest in fictional femme, not fatales, or maybe is that is that the femme fatale archetype? Um, f- mm, I don't think femme fatales go redemptive. Yeah. Okay. So I I don't know what it is, but uh, I'll have to look up that trope and see what it's called. Maybe we'll get into it next time. This is all bonus content anyway. But um, if anyone listening wants to drop your uh, what's what's the word like? What's the term for that like experience you have that just keys you into like oh yep this is me this is my sexual identity. Um, an awakening moment. This better not awaken anything in me. Yeah, awakening moment. Do I am I nuts here, or can you describe anything like that for yourself, Tyler? In video games, in general, in general, yeah. Well, <laughs> certain things I uh, keep too close to the heart to share publicly on a forum like a podcast. Um, but oh, I'll let other- <laughs> I'll lay it out, out there. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Oh. I'm creating content here so much. I want to give you something, but hold on. I want to put it into a video game context. I hate to say, I just hate to say shit like, well, Tifa was perfect jerk off material, you know? No, no, you don't need to go there. I, I didn't go there at all because I talked about, I talked about like character qualities in a way. Like, like you could go back and an anal, (laughs) you go back and, analyze my uh my three mm-hmm. entries and say there are, there are other reasons I have the interests I do but I don't go there at all right I'm talking purely about the character um progression and the traits and um developments of the character they are certainly well developed characters you know uh, I can't feel like I've got can't live in a rut about this. Maybe <laughs> cut that. All right, I'm just gonna chalk it up to lack of imagination here. <laughs>